I think a father's job is to prepare his children for a future that he will never see. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is Marvin Charles with About Dads. And the way I met Marvin is a dear friend of mine who's a single dad. He's in recovery and he's got custody of two of his daughters. And he told me about your awesome class. I just could hardly wait to talk to you about this and let people know what you do. Okay, you are right. My name is Marvin Charles. My wife and I started a ministry that works specifically with fathers. I'll start out by talking about my wife, who is very significant in this role that we play. My wife is named Jeanette, Jeanette Charles. She was raised by a single father. She was born in 1966 and her father got custody of her at a very early age, like about six months or so. That was really unusual back then. It really was, right? As the story goes, he was in Los Angeles with her mother. The situation wasn't working out very well. So he decided to leave. And so he came by the house to say goodbye. He went to pick his daughter up and a diaper fell off. And she was being looked after by her siblings. And he said her bottom was so raw from diaper rash. He just changed his mind. No, I'll take her with me. He left a message with the mom that he was going to do it. And so... He was headed to Cleveland, Ohio, his original hometown, but I think it's Cincinnati, I'm sorry, but he made it as far as Seattle, Washington and had some friends here. They was able to help him get housing and situated. He and his daughter wound up in the Rainier Vista area where she grew up with him until he passed when she was 27 years old. I first met this woman who was passionate about men and what men do. And it was really based on her father and what he had done with her. And I think in the very early stages, I didn't really understand the benefits that I got from the marriage, right? I didn't. So that was Jeanette's impact in that. And when I met her, we both was crack addicts in addiction. And then her and I had two children. I had already had three other children. She had one. I had one of my sons with me. She had a son. So we got together and then we had two more children. But our addiction caused our family to implode inside, meaning the state came in and took two of our children. Uh, One of them I sent off to his grandparents in California that left us with two of them. And then another one was born born right in the midst of a crack addiction. And I was so frustrated and bewildered. I didn't know what to do. The house we were living was a crack environment 24-7 around the clock. And, And in my frustration, I got mad and cussed everybody out and took the baby with me who had been born seven months prior to this, in the midst of this. I didn't realize, though, that as I was feeding her and changing her diabetes in the midst of all of this, that there was a bond growing between us. Had no clue. This is how I found out. Somebody came in and said, I want to see your old lady. And I got mad, cussed everybody out, walked out of the house. I took two cans of formula and I took four pampers with me and got on a bus. I was really desperate in my thinking. And my desperation told me, you need to leave the baby on the steps of the hospital. So I literally headed to Harborview Hospital to leave the baby on the steps. When I got off the bus, I sat on a park bench and I just started crying because I realized that I couldn't do this, but I didn't know what to do. 
that bond, it was when it came to me to realize, and I had never done anything like that before. So I didn't leave her on the steps. I went to a woman's shelter, which was right down the street. And I asked them, is there anything that anyone could do for me? I'm 40 plus years old with a seven month old baby with no job, no home, no anything. And they told me, no, we don't have anything for you. Your best option is to take her to the CPS office. And again, I was so desperate, I headed for the CPS office. Now, what was strange about that and my desperation moved through that was because the CPS already had two children of mine, had been looking for me for a year. And here it is, I show up on their doorsteps, right? <laughs> Special delivery. You know what I mean? And it was desperation. And, and so at this point, um, drugs had me to the point I was willing to listen to anybody or anything that would move me from that position or that mindset that I had. I got there and they treated me like I was public enemy number one. And then this lady emerged out from the back and said, son, come here, let me talk to you. Put me in this little room and just ask me one question. What do you want to do? And I just cried like a baby and told her, this is what I want to create an environment for raising my kids. I said, I came from the foster care system and now I'm realizing I'm repeating the same thing in their life. And that ain't what I want to do. And she listened to me. She said, well, First things first, you're going to have to go back to the house and the mother's going to have to sign off on that. And I said, that ain't going to be a problem. You know, I knew addiction would cause us to do anything, right? So we loaded the baby up in the car. We drove to the apartment. I went, uh, knocked on the door. She let me in. I said, we're going to give this baby up. She signed the paperwork. I said, come on with me to put the baby in the car to say goodbye. She shook her head. So I knew she was really upset with me, right? And so I went out, buckled my daughter in her seat and watched him drive off. And then I went back to go inside and I was locked out. So I was homeless at that moment, right? But I wasn't upset about any of that because I kept thinking about this environment that I had created, that I was a part of, that I jumped in with both legs. I need to do something about it. So if I'm gonna worry about what's taking place right now, then I'm not looking towards the future that I needed to be. My sister lived not far away from me. She was caught up in the same addiction. She had three children. They had just got a, a little apartment. Her boyfriend was murdered. So I'm so deep in this misery love company thing. I just remember that sister had a dog named Hershey. And I remember she had a one bedroom. So her and her two daughters slept in the bed. My nephew, who had been shot in the back through gang violence a number of years prior to that, was on the couch and I was on the floor with the dog. And it was just a reality check. There's nowhere to go but up from here. But if you keep playing in the mud and the chaos that you're playing in, this will be you for the rest of your life. And I remember having that dialogue with myself. And so a couple of months later, that was December 23rd, 1997. I went into treatment six months later. I spent 90 days and on a campus where they told me when I signed up, only five of you are going to make it out of here. And there were 200 people on this campus. I used to bring my daughter to come see me when she was really small, like three or four months. I used to sing to her. I used to sing uh, this little crazy little stupid song, but she loved it. It was skid a rid a rinky dink skid a rinky do I love you. And I just sang it to her all the time. So when she came to visit me, I hadn't seen her for a few months. And she was kind of standoffish. But when I started singing that song, she just melted like butter in my hand. And the social worker that brought her to see me, she said, how did you do that? She had witnessed it too. 
So what it said to her and she said to me was that there was a connection and that I had an opportunity to grow that connection as a father. They started giving me leadership roles at this treatment center. I was assigned that I could take people to the hospital who needed to be, I could run meetings. And this was the first time in my life having a leadership role of responsibility and coming through with that. But it was hope and encouragement too. I had to take some parenting classes because now the court cases started to come alive where I had to kind of fight to be able to put my family back together again. And so I got out of treatment, but just as I was getting out, their mother was coming in, coming into treatment. And so that was a great sign of hope. And then I entered into a relationship with this person of Jesus Christ just before I left the treatment center and I got baptized and I needed something to be solid in my life, something that kept me from doing all the crazy stuff I had done for the last 20 years. And so I grabbed a hold of that. My faith and my recovery was the only two things I could hold on. I got a job, Jeanette got out of treatment. Maybe 10 days before she got out of treatment, I asked my pastor, what did he think about Jeanette and I getting married? We were at the courthouse going to court for our three children. And the court person says, she doesn't have any chance to get the kids because this is her fifth rodeo. And because you're a man, you probably have no opportunity. And then she said, if you were married, it might be different. Now she wasn't encouraging marriage. I, and I'll tell you, I'll prove that to you in just a second. And so when she left, I looked at Jeanette and I said, if you will marry me, I will do everything in my power to be the man, the husband, the father that I need to be. And she said, yes, talk to my pastor about it. He said, you guys have relationship, you guys have things in common. So yeah, I think that'd be a great idea. And then he loaned us the money to go get the marriage certificate and everything. And then a friend of mine drove us to get married. We did this all like within 30 days. So when we went back to court, the caseworker was there in the courtroom and Jeanette said, Marvin and I are married. And she looked at me and said, what did you do that for? <laughs> well, because we want to be this family, we want to bring our family together. again. So that started that journey. She got out of treatment. She lived our first six months. She lived in one clean and sober house. I lived in another and our curfew was 10 o'clock. So that was our first six months, but we were striving for something. And so we found a little three bedroom rambler home. We tried to make the best out of it for our children in anticipating them coming home. And it happened. And I'll tell you another story impacted in that. So the day she went to pick the kids up to bring them home, I get a phone call from a lady who said she was a search consultant. And she said, is your name Marvin Charles? Well, I thought she was a telemarketer. Well, in fact, she said, a lady paid me $400 to find you and this is your mother. And she only lives less than a mile away from you. And I was like, wow. Well, I knew I'd been adopted. I had made some attempts to find out, but all came about to nothing. So I never thought about it. Now nah, I come home from work, I'm taking a shower, she's going to get the kids. And the day we bring the kids home, I find out that I have a mother. So when the kids got home, we jumped in the car and we drove to go find this lady who's standing on the corner waiting to see me, who was my mother, who was with, a, uh, I had a niece and a, and a sister that was standing there with her. Oh my goodness. It was crazy, it was crazy. Well, then I asked her about my dad and she said, well, I haven't seen him in 40 years. And the last thing I heard, he lived in California. She found him. She found my dad 
So I jump on a plane. I fly to see my father. I had prayed this prayer in treatment. Lord, help me put my family back together again. I was only talking about my kids and stuff, right? My wife and stuff. Well, what happened was I came back. My mother jumped on a plane. She went to see my dad. I don't know what happened, but he asked her to marry and she said yes. What? So this whole family came together. We did Good Morning America. It was just a beautiful thing. So here are my kids. I find out I have two brothers and two sisters. I have nieces and nephews. I have that summer, we had 200 family members that showed up in Seattle at a family reunion. So I got all this family I had known nothing about. Grew up my whole life not knowing about, right? What happened was after the dust settled, after the traveling After the television show, my wife and I sat down in our living room and said, there are people that we got high with, we did time with, we did crime with, who are wrapped up in the same turmoil we were. How could we take what we've learned and then help? Our children are going to grow up in the same community. They're going to marry somebody out of this community. What could we do to help our community heal itself? And that's how we started really just working with fathers in our community who had children who were disconnected from their family, just as Jeanette and I were. And we knew that fathers were the source of that. So we were just able to put those things together. And 22 years later, we have dads, divine alternatives for dad services. So you do classes, support groups. What are all the services that you provide? Great that you asked that question. At our website, aboutdads.org, we have just a few services, but they are powerful services. One of the services um, that we provide are parenting plans, support groups, and child support management, which is probably one of our big ones. Folks come in and they have issues with child support, issues with being able to see their children. And we really try to sit down through some of our class settings and explain to them how those processes work. Uh, My wife has created a great relationship with child support. And here's why. I didn't have any child support issues. My wife did. And usually when your children are in foster care, the state creates a child support order on you because the state, when your children are in foster care, pays the foster care family. And that money has to be put back some kind of way. So they usually charge the custodial parent. Well, when we found that out and we were trying to make our ends meet by putting our families together, we realized that we couldn't do that and that. So we had to figure out a way to just navigate those waters. Well, in navigating those waters, my wife created a great relationship with the child support office. So much so, 22 years later, we still have relationships with those folks who then work with our families or folks that we connect with and helping them navigate those waters. Child support management is one of the services we provide. Parenting plans, those for people who are caught up in the midst of wanting to visit their children but don't know how to navigate those waters, our support groups. And then, as you talked about, classes we do. We do eight-week classes every 10 weeks, every 13 weeks. We'll do a class eight weeks. We'll wait three weeks before we start the next class. Then we do another. I wrote a book called Becoming Dads, A Mission to Restore Absent Fathers. Out of that, we built a classroom curriculum follows that. And all it is, is just some situations that I've learned that I navigated that while we turned into a curriculum to help other fathers navigate the same waters. What amazes me is something that I heard you say in another interview about how women can get the help they need. No question. Here's why. Because like I told you the story of my wife, 
Jeanette. She had to navigate these same waters. We had to navigate these same waters. And because it says dads doesn't mean that we don't lend ourselves to anybody who has those same criteria, because that's what we do. We're about building community. And so it's been really refreshing for me that we have women who come and say, can I make an appointment? We have mothers. 40% of our calls come from women. It'll be a grandmother, a mother, a wife, a girlfriend, a sister, an aunt. They want to come and they want to be able, how do I help a family member? How can we help me? And we just are honored by that because again, it impacts the community. We're talking to Marvin Charles with About Dads. And I got to tell you what he's wearing. A Seattle <laughs> Supersonics, Gary Payton, number 20. And the first thing I said to him is my sister is still crying over the Sonics. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I think we all, all are. I love what you're doing and that you're doing it so long after you have I mean, we all know recovery is ongoing, but a lot of times when people get into recovery, they want to help others and then they move on. But we are dealing with such an incredible drug issue right now Mm. that I feel like your services are needed more than ever. And it looks like you have more than one book. Actually, I don't. I'm in the process of writing another, but no, I just have this one book, Becoming Dads, A Mission to Restore Absent Fathers. It tells the story of redemption and recovery. And what I love about that story, number one, that you hit rock bottom. Number two, you got a bond with your child and that is what disturbed you. Yes. Touched my heart. And I actually work with recovering addicts. And so I see a lot of them come in and out. They'll relapse, relapse. And and usually eventually they will get it. But when Mm -hmm. they told you, five of you will make it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What? Out of 200. I know. Woo. And you didn't give up. You were like, I'm going to be one of those five. Here's what I've learned over the years. I've never met a man who didn't endure his children. I mean, in prison, out of prison. I never. And what I did was made my family, my children, my ultimate goal. And I didn't want my children to be faced what I was faced with. So that same daughter that I almost dropped off at the hospital, I wound up driving her to Langston University in Oklahoma and dropping her off there. So that was the ultimate story. And I figured that if we can just take men and point them to their children, take women and point them to their children and then wrap our arms around them, making it to that. Yes, there are a lot of hurdles, but for some reason, every time you mount that hurdle, you get stronger and the next hurdle and you get stronger. So I always say, can we make kids the focus? I think a father's job is to prepare his children for a future that he will never see. If you know anything about the AIDS virus, AIDS doesn't kill you. What it does is breaks down your immune system and the infection is what kills you. Fatherlessness is the same way. If you take a father out of the family, out of the home, the family doesn't die. What it does is open the family up for infection, teenage pregnancy, at risk youth behavior. So let's be able to use a father as a vaccination, vaccinate the family and the children in the family so that they are protected from those things. You are absolutely right. Drug is rampant. And that usually is the first sign that starts to destroy the family. But if you ask a child, a part of the impact of that family situation is some way, somehow along the lines, that family was impacted 
to some degree by fatherlessness. I believe this in my heart strongly. It takes nothing away from families. We got to reinvent the father. We got to re-encourage him. We got to show him that he is not worth what the TV says he's worth, but what that heart of that child says he's worth. And a lot of times we, we don't get to hear the child until it's too late. I'm trying to teach fathers how you hear the child even in their silence. That's beautiful. I do see so many dads that do get very defeated. And our mutual friend, I met him before he even knew that he had some of these kids. Mm. <laughs> and I love it that he wasn't expecting it, but he's like, let's do this. Like you, he embraced the other parent best mm -hmm. he could mm -hmm. because the kids are made of both of yes. the parents, right? Yes, yes. And I just love seeing his growth. I love seeing his dedication to your class. I love seeing a dad rise up. I know there's a lot of good dads, but it would be easy to say there's a lot more single moms maybe right. than single dads. And right. single dads need resources. Yes, yes. And we have tried our best to help dads in receiving their resources. We also tried to be a guide in how to guide through that. I'm impacted by the community of fathers that we have. I love it. I mean, we have fathers from all different nationalities. And one, again, I repeat, the thing that I find out that they all have in common is they love their children. What we try to do is then let's help you express that. Let's help you understand when your child is expressing that. Let's help you understand you don't build your understanding based on how the mother's feeling. We have a lot of fathers who don't have the opportunity to be in relationship with the children's mother, but that shouldn't stop you. Your child still needs you. And so we figured out ways to help them navigate those waters and still become the tool, the safety net that their children need. Correct me if I'm wrong. What I feel like in the work I've done, dads will more easy say I'm not worthy and the kids are better off without me. Where moms will, they have that mama bear thing. And so I feel like with men, they need that encouragement. They need someone to say, no, no, they need you. You're absolutely right. And what we've used, this has been our kind of metaphor. Here's what we need you to do. We need you to go somewhere and get your life together. Don't be weighed down by what you think. Go somewhere and get, because guess what? One day that child is going to come and knock on your door. And if you ain't ready, they're going to throw their hands up and say, that's what mom said you was and walk away. So what best, better for you to do is go and create an environment. So when that child knocks on your door and you open the door and say, that's your room right there and this is where it is and I've been just waiting on you. Do you know the impact that that will have? Now, I know guys are, well, but what about, I wasn't there to wait. Listen, God will put you there in the moment and the time necessary for you to be there, but you got to trust that. And in the meantime, go build that sanctuary for that child of yours. It's like, yeah. don't give up. Keep doing the walk, even if you're not exactly. getting custody or you're not getting visitations. I love it that you say, trust it. I think a child would love nothing more than to hear, I've been waiting for you. I've got a room for you. 
And the truth is, I have some grandchildren that were adopted out of the foster system. Mm -hmm. These kids, they want their mom and dad. Exactly. They want their own moms and dads. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And good foster parents understand that and don't get their feelings hurt. Dads, let's go be there for our kids no matter what. You know, I was a single mom and at the time it felt like forever but it passed so quickly. Mm. Our window is so small. Yes. And I love it that you're encouraging them. I'll give you a prime example. I have eight children by five different women. I have four boys and four girls. My son, my oldest son, called me when, it, when he was 16 years old. I, I went to see him and I said, your mom just won't let me. And he looked at me and said, don't you ever mention my mom's name out your mouth ever again. And I was like, whoa, okay. And I made some attempts, but they didn't. Do. And then uh, I got a chance to spend some time with them and we got a good, great understanding. And then when he was 28 years old, he called me crying his eyes out. And so I said, here, get on a plane, fly to me. He lives in central California. He got on the plane. I picked him up at the airport and he just was weeping. He said, dad, I need you, man. He said, man, my mom lives with me. He said, but I just, I can't get it. I don't get it. And so he said, man, I'm behind in my bills. So I, I went to my bank account and I emptied out. And I, I, part of me says, I've never really done anything significant in your life. And maybe this is the opportunity that I get to do that. So he spent two weeks with me. And he got to spend time with his brothers and his sisters. And, and at this time, my son didn't have a job. He was a rapper. He filmed his stuff. And all. But when he left that day, I took him to the airport. He went home, got a job. He's 34 years. He's been working ever since. He's in a relationship. And then he says this to me. He said, Dad, I want to leave a legacy. And your name is not on my birth certificate. So how do we do something? Because if I have children, I want them to have the name that you have. And I said, Whatever you want me to do, whatever, however you want it done, we'll do that. But that was that child I didn't get a chance to spend a lot of time in. In fact, I left when he was five years old. And so he had a lot of supportive around him. But for him to call me and say, Dad, I need you now. This is the half of my life where you're going to make the most difference to me. What father don't look for that? What father don't want that? What father, most fathers think that they have to participate from zero to whatever in order to get that kind of respect from their child. And I'm saying that's not true. Yeah, you're saying do it, even if you're late to the party. Yes. And, well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Now, how can people find you? Our website is aboutdads.org. And the name of your book again? Becoming Dads, A Mission to Restore Absent Fathers. And if anybody is really interested in, just come to the website, send me an email, and I'll get you a copy out. Awesome. Yes, yes. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much, and I appreciate you. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.